0: Well, welcome to LSE everyone. It's, it's a, a great pleasure to see you all here tonight for this event. My name is Helena Vieira. I'm the managing editor of LSE Business Review. Um, if you don't know what LSE Business Review is about, we are a blog that has a mission to, be, to act as a bridge between uh, research and business. Um, we publish pieces uh, written by academics for, that translate their research to a busy, busy professional audience. We also publish uh, articles by professional um, business leaders about their experience um, and also their company's research. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, our handle is LSC4Business. And we're also on Facebook, and we also have a newsletter that I encourage all of you to sign up to. Um, Gender is one of the relevant issues that we cover. We've been covering gender very consistently. And and I'm very proud uh, to have partnered with these two organizations that fight to improve women's lot in the workplace. Catalyst is a global not-for-profit organization created in 1962. It works to accelerate progress for women through workplace inclusion. You can find them on Twitter at Catalyst Inc or Catalyst INC. Uh, Women in Journalism UK is a networking campaigning training organization for women journalists. It grew out of uh, a demand for women to be more effectively represented at senior level in newspapers and magazines, and has since evolved into a forum for women in journalism at all levels, and you can follow them on Twitter. It's uh, WIJ underscore UK. Let me introduce you to the members of tonight's panel. Um, Dr. Marina Francki is an LSE fellow, uh, she is uh, at LSU 100, the LSE course. Her research uh, focuses particularly on the news media. Uh, Jane Martinson is Head of Media at The Guardian. Ex-Head of Media
1: from this, from this <laughs> summer. i now a columnist at The Guardian. Okay,
0: good. <laughs> um, Eleanor Mills, <laughs> Editorial Director of The Sunday Times, Editor of The Sunday Times Magazine and Chair of Women in Journalism. Alison Zimmerman, here on my side, is the Executive Director of Catalyst Europe. And then we have Ben Preston, who is the Executive Editor of the Sunday Times, and Yasmin Alibai-Brown, who works at the International Business Times, right? And iNewspaper. Okay, and iNewspaper. These two guests, or these two panelists are a surprise uh, in, introduction tonight. Uh, we hadn't been able to get a hold of them at, on the last minute. We finally made it, so we're very happy that you both could make it and all of you, welcome, welcome to LSC um, Katie Hind is a reporter <laughs> at the Mail on Sunday and she is also a member of the of the WIJ Commission. Um, not the commission, the WHA, Committee. WIJ, right? the, committee, yeah. committee. Uh, the committee, okay. <laughs> Before we start the discussion, um, Eleanor and Katie will do a presentation of the, the great study that WHA did about uh, the representation of women in the media and the number or the percentages of bylines by women uh, compared to men. And uh, then after that we will uh, go to A panel discussion and then we'll reserve half an hour for a &A, Q&A with the audience so there will be uh, the stewards uh, will be everywhere with roving microphones so that your question can be heard. Um, Some basic information for those of you tweeting tonight our hashtag is LSCWij, and could you please take a moment now to put your phone on silent? Because it would be awkward <laughs> to interrupt the discussion. Uh, this evening's event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast, if nothing breaks, if, if everything works correctly. But now will you please join me in welcoming Eleanor and Katie.
2: Uh, thank you, Marina. Thank you to the LSE for having us here. Um, I'm Eleanor Mills. I'm the uh, editorial director of the Sunday Times, and I'm also the editor of the magazine. Uh, but it's, and really, we're here tonight as women in journalism to talk to you about what I call the male lens, which is how um, society gets, through which society gets reported. So the media is the mirror that society holds up to itself. And I argue, and I feel passionately, that the the lens that we held up isn't a true reflection. It's a distortion because of the kinds of people who are mainly choosing what goes into the newspapers that you read. And you hear about this a lot. So hang on, we got some slides here. So here we go. Um, so the media rots, plays a, a kind of key role in deciding um, on what what leaders look like. Um, and we've now actually got quite a lot of extremely senior women um, in, in the UK and in the um, who have, you know, got very senior. So we've got most of the political parties now other than in Westminster are led by women. Theresa May, Prime Minister, um, Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, Arlene Foster, DUP leader. But still, despite having women in so many kind of senior positions in, in public life, often the way that they're represented in the press, i think is unfair and it comes through a distorting lens which is partly the um rather kind of uh, the, the particular bias that we see um on newspaper kind of uh, um often in new, in newsrooms and on newspaper backbenches. so this, I think, is pretty typical. You may remember this. This is when David Cameron appointed a whole load of women to his cabinet. And uh, were we interested in what their qualifications were? Um, how much they'd studied, how much they knew about their areas? No, nope. the Daily Mail are interested in the Downing Street catwalk. How were their frocks? Can Penny Morden wear a nice purple, purple dress? Has Amber Rudd got good shoes? You know, it's absolutely, I think, in this day and age, pretty disgraceful. Um, okay, so often to be a woman and make the front page helps if you're glamorous. Here are two, two particular offenders. Um, and I think this one really took the biscuit. Okay. <laughs> so this shows that how, however important you are, um, you can be the Prime Minister of the UK, you're the leader of Scotland, but all that really matters if you're a woman is how good your legs are. We're always going to be judged on our appearance, particularly by the Daily Mail. So actually, I, I was on Sky News this morning talking about this with a rather well, senior editor on the Daily Mail who was there when this was done, and he was going, oh, legs are just a bit of fun, we just wanted to cheer up the paper and make it jolly. But um, And he said that today they'd done um, Trump and Boris and doing a kind of hair off. But I, I would argue that, that that is kind of profoundly different because men aren't usually seen through that lens. And this is particularly about um, how attractive a woman is. Um, it, it goes to the heart still, I think, of how they're perceived. And I think it's massively off-putting to lots of younger women who might want to consider going into public life, but don't want to be judged by through that particular prism. Um, and it's not just about, I mean, Lexa is a bit, it's kind of funny, but also ghastly but um, it's also how women are described, so we've called this, um, our presentation, the tycoon and the escort girl, because I think that really goes to the heart often of how women are perceived. As a female executive, I can often sit in a news conference, not when Ben's there, hasten to wags, he's a real blast of fresh air on this, but um, (laughs) often you look down a news list and what you see is women as victims, women as arm candy, and as a female editor, and in my magazine, I I hope I really practice what I preach every week, I try and Really present women with agency women who are doing things in their own right who are um, and often you know try and make it as diverse as possible and i think that that's it's really important i've got two teenage daughters and i want them to grow up looking at the media around them and seeing the kind of women that they might want to be and seeing women respected for what they do not not kind of only seen as um uh, you know only not only being judged by how hot they are which i think is a kind of pervasion, pervasive perversion in our society, and we need to get rid of. But I think this thing about the sugar daddy killer, the millionaire's depraved obsession, what do we find out about this girl? All we know is that she was a cool girl and an escort. She's a person. She has a hinterland, she has a life, and I think too often that's the prism through which um, women are judged. So um, what we decided to do in 2012, under Jane, who was then chair of uh, women in journalism we looked at who was writing the news and who was making the news and what kind of women appeared um on the front pages and we discovered then that um basically 78% of front page bylines bylines in 2012 were male Um, and what we decided recently that we would redo this because everyone says, oh, now there are so many powerful women around and there are more women in the media, things will change. It's it's all getting better all the time. It's what we're told all the time. It's the same kind of message about women on boards. Um, You know, oh, yes, you know, the fact that there are more men in the FTSE 100 um, called Chris running companies and there are women, you know, that's all fine. But um, it's changing, it's changing is is usually the line. The the pace of change is glacial, and what we've discovered, and Katie's now going to take you through the research, which she's done rather brilliantly, is just how slow that pace of change is. And I would argue passionately that we need to do something about that. Because a first draft of history, which is only written by men, is a severe distortion of how society should be judging, writing about, seeing itself.
3: Katie. Hi. Right. <laughs> you go. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you to the researchers who helped collate this information <coughs> because they also put an ex- extremely Long hours into it as well. Um, So we began our research um, at the beginning of June um, and went through to the end, towards the end of July, it was seven weeks. Um, What we discovered was just 25% of front page bylines were written by women, um, compared to the 23% in 2012. So within five years, there was only a two percentage point increase, which um, surprised even me, um, I have to say, and I have. Quite strong opinions on this. So the best performing, and was you, you did the research. Explain when we did it. Oh, that's in what, yeah, June, yeah. July this year. We, so. we, we, we did it from the fifth of June to the twenty-second of July.
2: So, pretty massive stories. Yeah.
3: Oh, sorry. Yeah. During which, there. I was going to come to that. <laughs> During which we had the general election, okay. um, the Grenfell Tower, <laughs> and the London terror attack on London Bridge. So there were quite big news stories, which is why this research is. Quite significant, which I'll come on to in a minute. So the Guardian was the best-performing um, newspaper for bylines, going up significantly from, 20, to, from to 43% from 22% in 2012. Um, the Telegraph, 38%. Um, 28%. Oh, going the wrong way, haven't What way are we going?
2: No, okay. hang on. That way. <laughs> Oh, no, and moment.
3: then the FT, 35% of their front page bylines were women, compared to 33% in 2012. The male, despite Lexit, etc., has 30% of their bylines were women, compared to 24% in 2012. Metro, 26% times 25% up from 18%, um, which we thought was significant because they do now have a female head of news there. Um, The Daily Express was extremely disappointing. In 2012, it was 50-50 male-female gender split, which has gone back to 16%. Um, I looked more into this, and I can't really work out why, because they've got the same male editor, they've got the same male political editor, they've got the same male deputy, female de- deputy politi- political editor, and they've got the same female social affairs correspondent. So that's particularly worrying. Um, the Sun also went down from 18% in 2012 to 15% um, female bylines in our research this time around. George Osborne's Evening Standard, which wasn't studied in 2012, has a 15% female byline count. He does; he has actually yesterday made um, an appointment of um, a female appointment um, for a Brussels correspondent, yeah. which he was very proud of um, when we approached him about <laughs> his poor byline counts. And the Daily Mirror was the worst, with 10%. Um, 10% of their bylines being written by women, um, down from 22% in 2012. Um, we kind of looked at, you know, why this might be, and as mentioned earlier, you know, this, this course, throughout the course of our research, it covered um, the three big news stories, um, which is kind of worrying because it doesn't seem like men and female women are covering these big stories, they're not getting the opportunities, um, and so we looked at why that might be. So then, as we can see here, there's three female editors. No, two daily, one Sunday, isn't there? Yeah. So we've got Ry- Catherine Viner from the Guardian and Dawn Neeson from the Daily Star, and the rest, um, the rest of our news- daily newspapers are edited by men. Um, but we went in, a, we went in even further than that and looked at who the deputy editors were, the news editor, the political editor. Um, a variation of um, executive roles. I think we've got them there. No, the wrong way. Yeah, no, that, keep that. No, that's bylines. Oh, sorry, that's okay. That's it. Here yeah, we go. Yeah. So these are the editorial roles that we looked at. Um, we, pro- we, we did our own research using our own sources as to see who um, does what jobs on the newspapers we looked at, um, and then we went to the managing editors to confirm our findings. We found that just 13% of these roles are filled by women at the Sun, compared to 25% of the Mirror, 27% of the Star, 29% of the Mail on Sunday, also the Times, the Mail. The Sunday Mirror had 31%, the Evening Standard 31%, as is the Sunday Times Observer, Metro did well with 36%, the Sun on Sunday 38%, and the Financial Times actually has a 50-50 split, which is quite impressive. So I think what we're now going to do is <coughs> examine further yeah, so that's as to there. why this might be. Yeah,
2: um, and also... This, do you want to talk about the... Yeah, person?
3: well, yeah, so, I mean, I think what was, what was really important was that on, on our analysis there are certain stories that are covered by women and certain stories that are covered by men. During the general election, for example, um, there was not one woman co- wrote a story about the general election for The Sun or The Mirror, um, because their political editors and their entire political teams appear to be male. Um, women write about health, they write about show business, they write about television, um, while the men get the kind of hard news um, stories to cover. Um, which is no surprise given that there are only three females running news desks on Fleet Street.
2: We were particularly struck by the lack of women being sent off to cover things like the Grenfell fire, um, terrorism um, and, and the election. And in fact, Tom Watson, the uh, Labour politician, has put out a statement tonight saying the lobby, the, the, the people who cover Westminster, are actually the worst offenders. So one of the reasons that the Guardian um, byline rate is so high is because they have a female political editor. In fact, they have two. They do a job share. And so um, they're getting a big hit on political stories because they've got women writing them. So so I'm, I was particularly interested, um, as chair of Women in Journalism, to have a look at where the women are in Fleet Street, because I think that that tells you quite a lot, of, often about what kinds of stories are seen as a kind of um, female prerogative and where they are. It's not it's not a silver bullet though, just putting more women in. Um, we have got a woman editing the uh, the Daily the Daily Star, which is not perhaps not everyone's idea of the most female friendly newspaper, and there were quite a lot of women on the on the Daily Mail, but I still think that the the, the lens through which the Daily Mail sees the World is very much that of the editor, Paul Dacre, who is the kind of you know the, the kind of ultimate kind of super powerful kind of emperor-style journalist. And so everything that happens in the Daily Mail really is what Paul Dacre wants. So I would say that there, the Mail lens is perhaps most concentrated.
3: And I think in terms of um, the, the the newsroom. Um, and having a female editor, it's about changing the culture, because at so many newspapers there's such a boys' club culture, which we 're not quite sure how we 're ever going to smash that.
2: Um, perhaps that's something we can discuss in our panel. But I do think it's really striking when you look at this slide of the um, that's I'm trying to find it of the, uh, of the male editors.: Um, just how, I mean I talk about a male lens on the world, just look at all those chaps who are basically the ones who are bringing you the news every day, and I think that everyone argues now, okay, our newspapers still is relevant in a digital world but the front pages still are the first draft of history, Uh, they're they're also massive on social media, that whole kind of tomorrow's papers today, the television channels do a whole paper review which is looking at the front pages, so I think you can't argue that newspapers don't still have an impact they do, even in a digital world and I think that most people probably have absolutely no idea um, what actually goes on inside newspapers which is why we've done this first bit of research which actually asked the newspaper companies where the women are in their organizations and what they're doing and
3: and actually some didn't want to reply to us did they the Telegraph the Express Yep, and the Daily Star,
2: but I I true we're we're not doing this to be vindictive We're doing this because I truly believe that that sunshine oxygen light into dark corners is what brings change And we have seen change the broadcast media has really changed in 2015 There was a House of Lords report into women in broadcasting and Um, where they were and where they happened on the screen To interrupt just to say you have one minute Okay, fine. No, I'm I'm at the end (laughs) Um, And that has changed it's now deemed unacceptable to have a panel of only men on TV Um, There's been a shift in the last few years, it used to be question time, you'd get lots of, lots of men, and now you get everyone tweeting stale pale male panel. I mean, that has shifted, but on TV it's much more obvious what's going on, in the newspapers it's more hidden. So we're hoping that shining a light on this, saying that we're going to continue to monitor it, and to name and shame, will really change things in the future. Thanks very much for listening. Thank
0: you. Thank you Eleanor, thank you Katie, thank you for this presentation. Um, We're going to start with um, some questions um, to try and make sense of this picture that was presented to us now. Um, One question that comes to my mind is there must be, uh, it must be profitable, I mean there there must be making lots of money um, not including women or, or not, or portraying women this way. So what, is there a business sense?
1: I would have to stop for that. I mean, I, th- I think that's always been the argument, isn't it? That, um, you know, there's a huge uh, sort of existential crisis in the newspaper industry, which faces competition from digital. I mean, you only have to look at Silicon Valley to say they have their own gender problem going on out there. Mm-hmm. Um, But if you think about what the media is, it should be more than a business. Um, Yes, it makes money. Yes, you know, people have grown rich um, with the business of newspapers, but they reflect society. Mm -hmm. And if we have a society that's seen, as Eleanor said in the introduction, if it's just seen through one lens, and that lens is just, it's half of the population which is male, it happens to also be white, older, middle-class men. That cannot, be a good way and a healthy way to have society, particularly now when there's so many challenges, it, you can, and, uh, you know, the, the idea that it's just all about the money, that will stop. I mean, you could see the fact that newspapers are struggling, they're not exactly the most profitable um, industry to invest in, <laughs> might be a sign of the world waking up and saying it is no longer acceptable to be so undiverse and expect to make money or to do a good service
0: Uh, I wonder what (laughs) Alison has to say about this. She works with lots of uh, big corporations, so you must must have a good idea.
4: (laughs) Well, there's no doubt that companies that are more diverse at the top make a lot more money. I mean, at the end of the day, it is the right thing to do, but it's crazy if you have a business and you don't reflect the marketplace you serve in the decision-making platform. And I throw out the question, what's the business rationale for the status quo? Um, What's the business rationale for having all men? There is no business rationale. It's usually, um, I think that there's a lot of bias that comes into the decision making. And if you're not reflecting it, you, you can't possibly be serving the marketplace. And what's most alarming for me is not only that there aren't women, but that there are not people of color. Uh, that is really alarming because that's not society. And it's, it's a missed opportunity. So most corporations, I would love to think they're doing it because it's the right thing. No, this is a business imperative, the majority.
0: Um,
5: yes, Yasmin. Um, uh, the I money? think I'm very pleased that both um, um, Eleanor and, um, well, everybody here is mentioning the fact that this is also a white problem. Um, when I got my column um, on The Independent, I was the first woman of color ever to have a political column the end result was huge numbers of people started reading the independent not because I was brilliant but because I was reflecting worldviews that just hadn't been there in the Arab world the independent sales went up amazingly when it came time, time, when, it, when it went online who did they dump they dumped the women so even if you prove yourself not just me some brilliant women who were working for the independent they were the first to because they thought you know, they don't make a fuss, it's isn't it? But I do think we are, it's just so bad. With Grenfell, I did my column today in I about this. I went to talk to people at Grenfell and what was very interesting is how many of them said, they used some pretty rotten words about the male reporters who had been with them in the early days and were emotionally illiterate. They actually said they were effing whatever. Right? And it's, it's telling that other story. So what is normal, what is excellent, needs to be challenged. That's what I think.
4: Could I, that's a great story. It reminds me of People magazine. It just came in my head. Years ago, when Selena died, they had to deal with the death, but they had nobody who had insight into that community. And it was largely southwest the U.S. So they brought in the Latina group and they said, help us understand this, this demographic. We don't understand why Selena's death is hitting us so hard. So they listened to them and they gave them all the information. To this day, that is their number one selling issue of People magazine is the one that was covering Selena's death because they, they went beyond the usual suspects and really try to understand it. I think Katie, um, who did this research,
1: has a personal experience of that as well, that on the day that um, you went to Grenville, didn't you, and and was talking to women and the victims, and it was really unusual because, you know, and this, this research is incredible, the limited change that has happened. When you have a period of enormous big stories, and for big, obviously, terror crime news desks, and I'm sure uh, Ben has lots of experience of this too, News Desk, almost to a man, send big people, which are almost to a man, men. So all the big scary stories, the number of women there saying, this is a story about people dying, this is a story about mothers losing children, children losing parents. So that perspective, it's so right that it's a business imperative because that's the story. That's what you want to hear. How, yes, cladding. Yes, how did it happen? But it's a very multifaceted story.
0: I want to hear... Um, I don't know if you, if you want to talk about the, the business angle too, but there's another angle that I would like to introduce now. I, um, it, it caught my attention that uh, even in, in places where women are in senior positions, the situation doesn't change very much. Not many women are assigned to the big topics. And, and women are still portrayed as as they are in general. So, um, Marina, do you
6: have any idea why this is? I guess like that this? you know, from from listening to the presentation and from listening to the experience of the journalists that are here, it seems to me that there is something to be said about the the news culture, the the way in which uh, newsrooms are. Uh, regulated and what are the values that appear to regulate the way in which not only we think about uh, the preferred point of view in a news, but also what it is newsworthy. What are the events and the, and the, the, the thing that we, that the, the newsroom thinks are the, uh, what the audience want to hear about. And so I guess that to some extent there is something to be said about, you know, on one side the the idea that you know more women um, have to be uh, reporting on more diverse topic. It is a business imperative, but it is an imperative as it is in any other um, sector. So you know, the, the exclusion or the marginalisation of women in the uh, job market is an issue per se. But maybe you know, one of the things that it is worth thinking about is the way in which that is regulated, in particular in the newsroom that, uh, as we were saying before, do you need to have a different point than just mm-hmm. the business imperative? They do serve a different role in our society. I, th-
7: I think the, be- the best newspapers um, gather together different perspectives on the world They gather uh, different bits of information that connect with different people and different issues, which is why I believe that newsrooms need to be a mix of people. Uh, And it's difficult as a man to come to uh, an evening like this (laughs) and and look at some of those figures. And I take no pride in the Sunday Times figures, which is 25% of bylines on the front page of the Sunday Times were by women. But the world is a complex place Uh, and I think there is a very specific problem with newspapers and how politics is reported. Um, Newspapers are absolutely hung up on politics. They regard it as a sort of soap opera. Uh, (laughs) And I don't think we can look at how we report politics with a great deal of pride. Uh, If you look at what happened with Brexit, if you look at what happened at the last election, most of the newspapers called those elections wrong why is that some of the answer may lie in gender but i think a lot more of the answer probably lies in just how metropolitan the newspapers are Um, how many newspapers have reporters on any scale outside london (coughs) far too few um to pick up on what yasmin said um what kind of racial mix do we have in reporters You tell me. Offer me a job, now. Not not, not a very good one. And what what is also coming down the tracks is actually you look at the class mix of newsrooms, which I think is a big, big issue, because actually I don't think it's fair to say the world hasn't changed much in the last five, five years and pace is glacially slow. I think actually when historians look back at this period, in 50 years' time, we're in the middle of a social revolution.
2: Yeah, but uh, I, but that's not being that you don't see that in your average newsroom, and that's not being reflected on the front pages.
7: Well, I I, th- I think it, I think it is, and I think it's beginning to be reflected, and it may not be fast enough. But if you if you look, I, I, I spoke before I came here to a, a friend of mine who runs the, the best journalism course in the country, which is at City, and I asked him what his gender mix was on the courses. And the answer I thought was very, very interesting. It was, if you, if you look at the totality of the magazine and the newspaper courses, the answer is women are in the majority. If you break it down, it's something like 80% of the magazine journalists, tra- trainees to be magazine journalists, of which there are more, are women, and it's about 66% are male. And there is something, you know, that's before people get, beaten up in newsrooms or whatever.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's
7: the kind of journalism that people at the age of 21 decide they want to do. Um, and women are clearly going for longer pieces, beautifully <coughs> written pieces and interviews and they are less interested no, in I news. Mean, no, now that, 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 that is an opportunity because I think it's up, up to newspapers to recast how they work their newsrooms Because you cannot afford to miss out on talent.
5: I think it's not, it's seeing yourself reflected, you're right, that women are doing the features and the, the, the softer journalism, because that's all they see. That's all they see. I remember getting Simon Kellner to send me to the party conferences one year saying, I've never been, you know, send me. I'll go there with a fresh face. I'm not a lobby journalist. Let me talk to the politicians. No, no, no. What would what would you do? What would? Actually, that was what you needed to happen. Yeah. You know. So that, that's the thing is. Of course, they're choosing the options they see other women doing. But how do you break that?
0: You know. I'm I'm curious to hear uh, what Eleanor has to say because she has a pretty powerful position <laughs> in a newspaper. Interesting. <laughs> She sits um, yeah. at
7: the editor's right hand at every conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: and, I, and I and I try and use that as a yeah. as a force for good. I hope you you know you'd be um, and certainly in the magazine that I run. I mean, this weekend I had Dawn French on the cover, a big interview with Camilla Batmanghelich, um, a piece by Alison Pearson about hitting the menopause. I tr- you know, I try and practice what I pre- preach, what I do. I've worked at the Sunday Times for 20 years. Um, I think under Ben, there's been a real sea change in the newsroom. I, mean, I don't think that the culture change necessarily has to come from women being in charge. I think, you know, a more enlightened kind of male executive can absolutely bring that kind of change. Since Ben's been there, he's brought in Becky Barrow, as a, who's a brilliant um, female news editor and i think that the two of them have really made a difference to the kind of um, the kind of stories that are now seen as news within the sunday times i think there's a very I mean, news, news is, a, is a hard, it's a, it's a hard game, you know, news is what someone somewhere doesn't want you to know. So you've got to kind of winnow it out and you've got to be quite persistent. And certainly on Sunday newspapers, if you've got kids, you're going to have to work every Saturday in a newsroom. That's not brilliant. And that certainly influenced some of the career choices I've made myself. You know, I work on the magazine, I edited the news review. Um, both of those meant that I didn't actually have to be there uh, on a Saturday. Um, which, is, which was entirely uh, intentional. When I was younger, before I had my kids, I was the focus editor, which is like the, at the real hard end of news for, for two years. So I have done it, but I certainly made the decision not to be in that kind of part of it. I mean, I think, it, I think what happens also in newspapers is that they see a kind of women box and they think, oh, we tick that one. So I've been there for ages, you know, I've been in the, on the ear of many editors giving them quite a hard time. So they kind of think, oh, well, we've got some women, we've got Eleanor, you know, she's, a, she's enough. And Sarah Baxter, who's the deputy editor. So I think that there's a sense that if you've got a couple, and there's a lot of research yeah. which says that, that they kind of think, oh, well, the women problems fixed. And then you're like, well, hang on, it's now like 10, 15 years later, how many more women have we got? <laughs> and the answer is, um, actually not not enough and that we've had a real problem with kind of women coming up through the ranks and um, too many people going and you see that across across journalism and I also think that actually the broadsheets in this are not the worst offenders I mean that the the stories that I hear from people from women in journalism who come to us from the tabloids is really horrendous kind of male editors sitting there watching porn on their computers going down the pub a totally kind of male culture um, a totally objectified sense of women there's one tabloid where they have no women in news conference at all as a gay man who's seen as a token woman. I mean, you know, there's, there's some really bad stuff going on out there, which I think needs, needs tackling. And it will only change if those newsrooms don't feel immune from criticism or think that they can just get away with it. And there's a lot, there's a lot of history of women being treated quite badly in the newsrooms of newspapers.
0: So I, I,
2: I take it it's a cultural problem more than
0: anything else, right? And, Marina, you were, I mean, you wrote about culture and newspapers. <laughs> oh good, what have you said? <laughs>
6: <laughs> no, I guess that, you know, part of, I think that there are two uh, order of, of, of consideration. One is, you know, what we were saying before in terms of the women that are choosing different path that often is used not only in journalists, but in any other um, job sector as a way to justify then Discrimination or segregation at at a upper level, and in a way it's this, but like the the data do not confirm that. You know, in a, if if that was true, then those who choose a path that is not, you know, the magazine path or the more, what it might be considered the less feminine path, if there were no discrimination, if there were no segregation, those women would arrive at the top. Yeah. Yeah. But the but that is not the case. So I guess that um, in, we need to accept the fact that there is a, there is discrimination. That there is a discrimination that happened at the moment of choosing the path, which probably is the result of what we what women, what young girls see in in, in the media and uh, and the way in which they understand their. Uh, potential to be fulfilled in various in various role, but going you know to, to think about to think about news culture, I guess you know the way in one of the big roles that media have is not only to uh, report but is also to set the agenda and to set the way in which we frame um, problem and we frame issue. Mm. So in a way, um, I think it is something that it we need to constantly be aware of that that's what media do and they do that under a a set of assumptions, and those set of assumptions usually reflect reflect, um, as we were saying at the beginning they were saying at the beginning of the presentation usually reflect a kind of hegemonic view that is that of white old middle class men so (laughs) Um,
2: Yeah, I think to that point, which is really germane, that I think many newspapers are the last great empires. You know, they really are kind of one of the last businesses that are really run by a king alpha gorilla. You know, there really is this kind of one big chap in his office at the top going, and, you know, and that that basically sets the tone for the whole of the rest of the newsroom. And I think that that's why sometimes you have quite a lot of women within an organisation and the culture doesn't really shift very much. I think the Daily Mail is a real case in point there because everything is refracted through that editor. He's the biggest beast on Fleet Street and he would proudly say that. So nothing goes in the Daily Mail that Doka doesn't agree with. And so, however, you know, you might have 30% of the women on your staff, but it's still Daker who's making all the decisions. So I I think that in the digital age, that is improving a bit because, as we all know, digital stuff happens much faster. You have to empower people to put it out. The, The chap at the top, and it usually, usually the chat can't oversee everything. So I think, that, I think that that is beginning to change a bit. But what really worries me about the digital world, and um, Jane talked about the tech at um, Silicon Valley, I mean, I think we have to, we have to be very careful that we're not sleeping, sleepwalking into a future which is less diverse, more sexist, totally set up within a white male worldview, which is the one of all the kind of the techies who are programming the future now in Silicon Valley, because the kind of gender kind of bias there is even worse than it is um, at the moment in, in newspapers. And,
1: and actually, I mean, taking up from that point of, it's so important to hear about sunlight, about, you know, Sundays did particularly badly, you might argue, maybe there could be an academic research paper on this, that that's because five years ago, no-one looked at the Sundays because we didn't feel there was enough evidence, you know, there wasn't a long enough period. So the Sundays, you look, as a whole, did not do as well in terms of getting women on the front. There could be all sorts of other issues. There's also the fact that, if you with the silicon valley you just don't know it's so much more hidden with at least with it's a blunt tool to look at front pages but they do have this uh, ability to sort of set the agenda to frame the debate and when you then study those things you see something you may not be conscious of and that is this dominance by men but i'd also just finally i mean we've talked about you know women does it make a difference you know, there's, there's really encouraging statistics here, and I would say this, obviously, but at The <laughs> Guardian, the appointment of its first editor-in-chief. But like, it's, not, it's not true to say, there have been many, many editors who are women. I mean, you look, there were a period in the 80s when there were three national newspapers edited by women. It, it is not true to say, just put a woman at the top and that will make all the difference, because lots of women in that position have aped the big yes. ape yeah. in the corner yes. office. Because yeah. that's, that's how they get there in the first place. They the become guardian, more than the men. What has happened is a woman who came in and actually said, I'm going to make a difference to the way we set the agenda. And particularly the biggest impact in this uh, research was the appointment of uh, two women as a job share mm-hmm. in one of the biggest beats on Fleet Street, which is political editor. That has meant that the Guardian went from 22% bang on average to 43% way out there no one else approached 43% that's almost gender parity that sort of decision-making not the fact that Kathleen is a woman the fact she made a big decision and made it early that made all the difference so change can happen
0: so uh, I mean I I, I get the picture of uh, change happens very slowly so essentially we just have to wait wait it out, or maybe in the next generation it's going to happen. No.
4: Oh, no, no, no. no, 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 no.
0: <laughs> so what can you do? Like, practically, what can we do? <laughs> oh, you have, to,
7: you, have, you have to find, you know, and I I, I I come from the news end of the paper, um, and I've arrived at a paper, and you look at the newsroom, and you see that there are not enough women in it, and you need to do something Ooh. about it, um, and you need to... Uh, talk to lots of different parts of the paper to make sure that you're drawing in. The best newspapers thrive on ideas, and ideas don't just come from one person in this digital age. It doesn't work like that anymore. It used to, uh, but I think that age is gone. Stories are about not just what informs and entertains, but it's also what connects.
5: But also what is missed. What is missed? I just did a, a piece, which The Mail on Sunday's sitting on, um, I talked to, I had access, because I speak the languages, yeah. I understand what's going on. The wives of groomers. Yeah. Nobody else has done that. No. That's a brilliant piece. What's yeah. to me? If,
7: <laughs> if they're sitting on
5: it. <laughs> it, wasn't it? They commissioned it. Now they're sitting on it. But that's what I mean, you're missing so much. So yes, if the course. terrorism story, the yeah. front pages, you were able to send, say, a young Muslim reporter... Yeah. She would get under the skin of what's going on. Grenfell be, is another example. To be, to be fair, we did. We did some brilliant
2: reporting on ISIS brides, and Louise Callahan, who is 26 and is our new um, female reporter in uh, Istanbul, got the most incredible scoop because she went and spoke to the women. And actually, to be fair, foreign reporting, women, are, women have always done brilliantly. And Leslie, yes. and some of the very best foreign reporters are women. We're very proud to have Christina Lamb on the Sunday Times. My great colleague Marie Colvin was killed in Homs five years ago now, mm-hmm. and so we've really led the way. On actually on the Sunday Times on having really fantastic female war war correspondents which just shows that women can do this stuff there's nothing more hardcore than being on a tank and going in somewhere and talking to people in Raqqa so it's not that women don't have these skills they do and I think often those female war reporters bring back an amazingly more kind of empathetic or kind of you know brilliant sense of what's going on there so I I think that that, that's that's the real kind of you know antidote to saying women can't do hard news Um, and I think I think that's really important you're totally right if you send a woman you get a different kind kind of story on that, and a different perspective. Alison, yeah. yeah,
4: I think we have to be careful, though, in stereotyping any group. Women are not a monolithic group, nor are men. If I say all men are this way, that's unfair to the men, because there's so much diversity within men. Same with women, there's so much diversity within women. So the danger in saying women are good at this, and women aren't good at this, or, and I know nobody's saying that, but, no, but that's the that's that's, slippery but, but that's often an
2: interpretation for why say only 10 percent of the um, uh, article by the front page um pieces on the mi- uh, mirror are written by women they'll yeah. say oh well the women aren't up to going to going to cover a terror story exactly. so i think it's very important to be able to point to examples which show that that's absolutely not true i mean no one's no one's trying to make those kind of no. sweeping statements except for often these chaps who are actually running the newspapers who yeah. make those kind of sweeping statements about gender every yes. day and i totally agree that it's about class it's about racial diversity yeah but I think we can start with women 50% of the population.
4: Absolutely, and I'm in in agreement with that. My only challenge is any time that we're we're making generalizations, it, it can be unfair. And so, I mean, first of all, perception drives reality. I agree with you completely. At the top of the house, I see it all the time. I was in Germany speaking with a group, a CEO and his direct team, and it was fascinating to, I'm not going to share because, but it was fascinating. <laughs> we talked about unconscious bias, and the bias was not about gender. It was about the size of somebody. It was not about ethnicity, and it was fascinating to go around the room and find out that, oh, we, this is what we think of one group of people. We do it all the time. The problem when, with leaders, when they're looking at women is they're often judging women in a way that women take care and men take charge. And this is one of the biggest stereotypes that's out there. So simply by gender, women are seeing less than when it comes to being leaders. And we don't think that, but that is often where the judgment lies, is it's so underground. And now here's the flip side, if a woman is not in alignment with her gender. Maybe she's really, like, you know, very tough. She's really taken through the ringer when she's in that senior leader role, because she's being held to a whole different standard. Mm. Men are giving a larger margin of error with how they can behave. So any time we go into gender stereotyping, um, I always, you know, come back to this, that it's a dangerous place to go, women are this way, and nobody's saying that, but it's more important that we focus on what are the skills, what is it that they need for this role, and what can they bring, but be conscious of how we're judging them, even we're not aware of it. Um, Is she too rough? Is she she nice? You cannot imagine how many times I am told by executives, I wish she were a little warmer, Hillary Clinton. I hear this 95% of the time working with executives. That's who this group is. Make no mistake. I mean, I know it's newspapers, different industry. But that's usually how the... the Yeah, but but the reason
2: why this is, in a way, more important is those people are maybe making soap or cars. These people are creating the product that the rest of us look at to understand our society. So it's a kind of whole category, kind of, you know, error more important.
5: Yeah. I mean, one of the most depressing things was in the column today. A young woman, four years ago, got in touch with me and said, will you have a coffee with me? I really, 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 really want to be a political... Journalist, so I had coffee with her. She was so smart. She knew more about how the p- political parties work than I ever did. She got a first. She got a, a work um, a special training scheme. Her boss, her immediate boss, refused to let her anywhere near the political team. He called her a sexy birdie, mm-hmm. and they and told her to do fashion and showbiz. So she left. And she immediately, within a week, got a scholarship to do, do a training at the bar. This woman will make her mark. We lost her. Our industry lost her. It's a scandal. I wonder. I wonder if we can, um,
0: if we can come up with uh, um, not a blueprint for action, but, <laughs> but uh, what can be done? Uh, is that like should we say women should do this or? or men editors to do that, or the executives? Who has to, to take the first step, and, and, and what, what can be done?
4: <laughs> I'm going to jump in. I'll keep it short. Engage the men. Engage the dominant group. That's where you need to work. It's, they have to see that they're not the problem. They're part of the solution. So let's not shame and blame, but let them see that they're in a place of power where they can really create change. Mm-hmm. And when they understand that, well, let me say it differently. We ask men, what do you fear? There are so many fears about engaging. And there are fears also from women about being singled out. They don't want to be seen as a token, even though they deserve to have a seat at the table. So include men. Women don't want to be singled out and men don't want to be left out. They don't want to lose in the sense by supporting gender equality. They, you need to really tap into their sense of fair play. That is the key predictor to engage in men.
1: Jane, what do you think?
4: Yeah, I completely agree with that, particularly
1: as a lot of them are still making the decisions um, <laughs> on which a future change will depend. Um, I also think just keep, you know, shining the spotlight of publicity. Keep saying, what, what happens in this industry? How are they doing this? Who is writing this? Who is judging? You know, and once we have these statistics, I mean, look at the BBC. We haven't mentioned broadcasters. You know, real change five years ago, they came under a huge amount of pressure about our publicly paid and owned broadcaster, entirely dominated by men. They, there's still a long way to go, but they've made big changes during that time. The more we say, look at this, look at these facts, is it right? And there'll be lots of people saying, what's wrong with men doing everything? let them say it and then we can all debate because they're not right so you know <laughs> it, it will prevail justice will prevail we just need to keep keep up the pressure and just keep looking and making sure change can happen the guard, you know there are lots of evidence change can come
7: the best argument is enlightened self-interest <laughs> i mean there's an army in the last 20 years um, of young women who go out to work who have careers and they ought to be reading newspapers, and they ought to be reading what we have to say. Um, And we need as many different voices and as many different sources of news as we can possibly get to make newspapers interesting in a world where, frankly, we're in danger of being beaten up by lots of little niche websites who will work on that agenda and walk on those agendas and draw readers in if we don't do it. It's in our interest. That's
2: a very good point, yeah. Now, I think that's really true, and I also think that it it is... It is better, you know. We're, we're printing a portrait of doom and gloom. It's definitely better than when I joined 20 years ago. Um, but we need to. I just want to speed up the pace of change. And I also think that I, I think it's really the reason why we've done this research is that we want everybody to know what's going on inside newspapers. And I think that it's very easy on TV. You immediately see who's on that panel. Within a newspaper, maybe you don't. You didn't, you probably never really see the, the pictures of these chaps, mostly chaps who are on the board behind us. So I think it's really important to shine a light on that I think that what they do and what they have to say is massively important, and it has to change, and it will only change if public pressure goes, hang on, this isn't okay anymore, or they'll die. So I agree, I mean, I agree with Ben, it's, in, it's, enlightened, it's totally I th- enlightened
7: th- self-interest, really. I, th- I think you also just have to look at what Ofcom is doing and what Sharon White has done. Yeah. Mm. Um, because we've done a survey here, it's a small survey, Ofcon has done a survey that says that, actually, the number of women working for the top five broadcasters is 48 per cent. The number of BAME's is 12 per cent. They know those figures because they've actually researched them properly. Next year, Sharon White is coming back and she's going to do, and I'm very glad I'm not helping her, um, she's going to do a survey that looks at the class background of broadcast Mm -hmm. journalists um which if you can imagine is a hideous thing to actually start working out and defining (laughs) now I, i don't actually believe that quotas are the way forward uh but i think we need to do better and there is a sort of critical level at which point you get a proper range of voices within media organizations where those voices are heard and they bring stories they bring different points of view, and that's what we're here to do. We're yeah. to provoke and reflect uh, and stimulate an interest as much as anything else. And you can't do that uh, in the old-fashioned, top-down way. Um, if anyone... You know, If you go back to the, the heydays of the tabloids in the 1920s and 30s, it was a different world where they were the one source of information and there was nothing to challenge them. We are now in the most competitive... Uh, market of information that any media has ever had to be with. Uh, And we have to change in order to survive in that.
0: Um, I was thinking that um, it would be a shame if we left here and not started to think about a call to action to newspaper. I'm I'm sure all the the senior editors are reading this report right now <laughs> <Hates it. laughs> trying to find out what was said about their papers. So what exactly do we want them to do? If we, if, if we write about what's wrong, uh, can we start coming
2: up with the, what, we, what we want them to do? Oh, i think a commitment to a more diverse kind of staff both in terms of you know women um, ethnicity and particularly in class uh, but i think that i think ben's right that the that if they're going to provide the kind of stories that are going to keep people reading newspapers and beating off the niche websites they're gonna they're gonna have to do that so but it's but it's really and, and it's slightly saying to me you you've got to you've got to do this this is a real problem and i hope that by doing this research we will, you know, we will have stoked that debate a bit. And maybe they'll, they'll now look at it and think, hmm, actually, maybe we do need to appoint a kind of woman, particularly covering politics, particularly covering business, where there's a real dearth of female reporters, sport, sport. complete, like, no-go mm. female zone. I and mean, you see it when you walk around newspaper offices. You know, where are the women? There's loads of women on the style section, There's quite a lot of women on my magazine. Not so many in the, on the business section or in sport or whatever. So I just think that needs to be that the, the powers that be really have to think about it. And some are much more enlightened like Ben, but you know, not, not all yet. And they need to be persuaded that they have to be. And I think the tabloids are particularly bad offenders.
5: Yeah. But they have naked ladies on the front page. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, one of the, you know, the, the
2: dawn, dawn, and um, um, it's the Daily Star, which is the worst offender on that, on you know, on that score. Exactly. But there's a, there has to be a, there has
5: to be a shift. Yeah.
2: What be. would you tell uh,
5: a
0: meeting of newspaper owners or? I or think
5: managers? I, I just I don't I think. I'm so old now. I've been singing this song for such a long time. I do think that there is a case for a temporary um, positive discrimination for any group in any institutions which is provably underrepresented. So a three-year period, say if class is underrepresented, then the organisation or the institution must operate positive discrimination until a kind of progress begins and then they can't go on beyond two or three years. I think there's a case for it. America changed because of positive discrimination. There isn't a single organization in America, at least on race Mm. and gender, which is as bad as we are. So I think there's something to be said for a two or three year period when whatever is missing, age, whatever group is underrepresented, you can operate positive discrimination for.
1: Jane, are that's you my for idea. quotas? Um, I, I feel sort of in two minds about quotas. I hate that. I know that's not the answer you want from anyone on the panel, but I, <laughs> I sort of, I sort of agree. I think quotas. What you don't want um, is a sense that you're being given that job because of.
5: Your gender. Yeah, I got the job, I was a token, but that's okay. No, well. that's okay. let me in, so, just let me yeah. in. I mean, I once, I, when I was Women's Editor, I
1: wrote saying, come on, time for quotas, just stop this, bring it in, because so few women political leaders, I mean, you know, and then it, there was a sea change that you felt, actually, you do need to bring about change. So I am in two minds. I'm not, I'm not sure, Yasmin, that it's all brilliant. If you look at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, for example, not broadcasters, my God, they're all white men Are with these? the few odd, really, really sort of well-known columnists. No, they're, I don't think they're that much better. But so I'm not, I sort of feel in two minds, but I, I support them if, you know, if they came in. Because I just think, we need to bring about change. And honestly, Ben, you know, City University, it really doesn't matter that the women who are going for magazine courses, there's whole loads of reasons, you know. They think it might be, they might be more likely to get onto it. They, they can see no, loads of not. women,
7: what, I mean...
1: editors. The, the fact is, I think, once we all start looking at, it's so diverse, there are women who are good at this and women who are good at that. There are men who are good at this, men who are good at that. So once we all start saying, but if you look, it's only about looking, is it if you look at the pages and go, God, they're all men. And once you just start doing that, and they're all white men, and they all look the same, and they're all wearing suits, then you start going, this is actually dull, and it's wrong, But
4: there's one caveat to that. Privilege is invisible to those who have it. So how do you get them to see their privilege and that's and to, give it, the to <laughs> give it up. It's a self-enlightenment
1: point, isn't it? it you've is. got to engage men, you've got to get the people who are making big decisions to recognise, men and women, that you know, the, this ca- if it carries on like this, it's a, sort of, it's a dying that, industry. Well, well, well that,
7: that, That's what makes life so difficult at the moment because frankly we are in a declining industry. Yeah. Uh, and we've been shedding people rather than taking them on over the five years. Nothing Mm. depresses me more than your anecdote about the woman who's gone to the bar. And actually that's part of a wider (laughs) movement. If you you look at um, who's doing medicine at university, Women Women are in the majority. If you look at who's doing law at university, women are in the the majority. And actually, as an industry, we've got to fight to get the best people to come in. So to have someone who wanted to come in and then is pushed out the door Mm. is frankly a criminal disaster. uh, And we cannot afford that. Do we need quotas? I don't think we do need quotas, but what we need is a, re- a steely resolve. resolve yeah. and we need to look at people at City University and we need to look at what courses they do at the start and we need to say why? are more women competing to go on magazine courses when we ought to be getting them to do news courses mm. yeah and maybe and maybe it's i'm it... losing talent at the magazine mm. co- i was a magazine editor for seven years <laughs> and, um but, i was very but, grateful but, the talent then now i want yeah. it but,
2: but ben maybe what we need to do as a newsroom on yeah. you know i would say the best newspaper on on a sunday that we need to be going down to the city journalism course and going look you know if you're all really bright and keen we're interested in seeing you get get a minute. I mean, we, we
5: take a lot of but not just city, city is full of no. the children and grandchildren. Shef- Sheffield. No. Yeah. Sheffield. <laughs> <Of> Cardiff. The city is just reproducing no. they're the children and grandchildren of editors. Yeah, no, but what, what we're trying to do at Women in Journalism,
2: as you know, because we were talking about it last week, is we are going to offer a series of um, kind of bursaries so that the kids from Newcastle, you know, who maybe aren't yeah. on journalism courses, but are at university and they're keen on their you know, their local paper or, what, or you know, want to write for the, for the newspapers, can can try and And um, they they can write to us and say, I need a bit of money so I can come down to London and do some work experience on a paper or have a go in a newsroom. So at the moment, there are loads and loads of kids who are completely excluded from ever getting anywhere near a national paper because they can't afford to come down to London and do kind of work for for free and put themselves up for a week because they don't have rich parents who live in the city. So it's also looking at the actual very kind of physical blocks which stops that talent arriving in the newsroom. What
7: what, what Sheffield does, because I'm involved in Sheffield and the journalism school there is they send their students out yeah. to primary schools for 11 and 12 year olds and talk to them about newspapers because those people don't have newspapers at home yeah. and they t- show them what the job is and they help them make a student well, help them make a a junior school newspaper in the hope of kindling something later on yeah. and that's what we need to be doing we need to be going beyond london we need to be going mm. beyond the north yeah. um we have the
3: yeah
6: if, um, if we can just like briefly add to that, and I think you know, in line with what Alison was saying before, I I think that I do you know those are all uh, absolutely you know wonderful uh, initiative. My only concern is, and I'm thinking you know, if I were a twenty one year old girl who get into the new into a newsroom and is the one that is supposed to bring the change, um, you know this is possible but at the same time is the institution in itself that needs to rethink about the way in which it is supporting diversity and the diversity of talent instead of just you know because to some extent what we see is that even those who are uh, who get into the newsroom sooner or later they just end up reproducing the same sort of a framework and the same idea, just because that is the institution and that's the, you know, the, the, the job culture. And so I think that those, changing needs, those changes needs to happen in parallel with a drastical uh, revision of what is that newspaper want to do.
0: So um, I'm afraid we'll have to, to stop the panel now and and then open to questions from the audience uh, if everyone is happy you said uh, what you had to say. Uh, the, the stewards will be walking around with roving microphones and I will be taking questions from uh, different people. I just ask you kindly to make sure there's a, a question mark at the end of what you say. <laughs> Um, Okay, yes. So, let's start
6: here. Um, So, a lot of the part of the process of going out and gathering stories is building relationships, and a lot of this kind of building these close relationships involves going out drinking or putting yourself kind of, not transgressing, but sort of going out the way to get to know people, especially in areas like finance or politics as a young woman, that can occasionally put you in, A, a vulnerable situation, and be a situation where you just want to find something out, but people misinterpret, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the, it's the nature, it's kind of transgressive journalism, in a way, is the nature of it. But how, as a young woman, do you, you know, how do you navigate that? How do you protect yourself? How do you kind of feel like you've got support and kind of guidance to deal with that?
2: Well, I, I was, um I used to do the main interview on the Sunday Times uh, when I was in my late 20s, I was about 26, 27, and I would go and see very powerful politicians, I did Mikhail Gorbachev, people like that. And uh, I was always, I was actually used to think it was a real advantage because because they was, they underestimated me, underestimated me all the time. You know, I'd go and they'd usually think that I was the girl who was bringing the tea, um, or they'd think I was the kind of photographer's assistant, and actually that was brilliant because you'd sit down and you'd, you'd start chatting to them and they'd be like, um, they, they, "They, you'd be under their guard because they didn't think that you were some kind of grizzled or political editor and then when you kind of chucked in actually quite a sharp question or came back at them on something they'd be absolutely amazed so I think sometimes being not what people expect can be a real advantage um, and I also think that um, despite everything that we said in a, in a very male-dominated industry for me being a young woman was definitely an advantage because they knew that they needed some kind of female voices within the paper so i think i got kind of promoted for that in terms of putting yourself in a vulnerable situation you've got to be really careful about that um and kind of what you're trading for what um and you know that and and what what of your own assets you're you're kind of trading on and be quite aware that you are in a professional situation where you're trying to get some information and actually you know maybe maybe going along and kind of flirting outrageously and wearing a kind of low top and getting really drunk is maybe not the best way to get the information, even if you think it is at the time. What <laughs> <laughs> Katie's <laughs> disagree? I've never really worked on a tabloid, but I think that's, that's, that, um, you know, that maybe if that's what you're being asked to do, then, you know, maybe that's not quite the job you should be on. Um,
0: so I think um, we're going <laughs> to take um, yeah, three questions at a time. That way more people can ask the, their questions. Yeah. So there's this... Uh, woman here (coughs) in
1: black yes Um, I'm a journalist and I and many other women I know of my age with young children avoid reporter shifts where you might get sent out to Grenfell because of the worry you might not get home in time Mm. to collect your children and this has been a battle in my own head and I think it's a shame to miss out on that kind of work but is there a way do you think that news editors could do more To make that kind of work flexible, or do you think inherently you just have to be prepared to go out, not know what's going to happen, and not know when you might come back? Let me see.
0: Yeah, she's there.
1: (laughs) All right. Yeah. Um, Hello. I'm a business editor of a national newspaper, and uh, it's no longer a print paper, but nonetheless a national newspaper. Um, I've got a small team. It's all men. I'm the only woman. Uh, I've got headcount, which is fortunate, and, and I'm looking to recruit the right person for the job, but if that person is a woman, then I will be very pleased. <laughs> um, what I'm finding is that very few women are coming forward, um, especially because it's business. People, women associate business with a male-dominated team. I've had job applications that have been addressed to DSR. Um, how do we uh, tell young, ambitious female journalists that they will be accepted on beats like business and sport?
0: Okay. Let's get another one. Yes. Yeah.
5: here. Thank you. Um, Julia Gillard said quotas. It's the only way you're going to do it. What I want to say is that Cheryl Bart of the ABC, sorry, Australian Broadcasting Commission, was over here three years ago, 50% right the way through the organization, from the top to the bottom. The reason for that was the legislation which had come through under Bob Hawke with the Minister for Women, Ann Summers, interesting name, And once the legislation was there, you had to publish gender audits. That's what's shining the light. Eleanor's dead right, you shine the light, and that's how you shine the light. Gender audits, which are put through, which every company, not just news, has to do. And then it'll be in everybody's interest to see that something happens.
0: All right. Um, So, the first question is, um, a journalist with young children, uh, is there a way for editors to help? in the situation
2: I think definitely yes as an editor i my deputy at the moment is pregnant with her second child I promoted her when she came back from her maternity leave I've, I have a real I have an absolute policy of always promoting women when they come back from maternity leave because I reckon that if you um, give them a job that if you make them feel valued and that they're doing a job that they really kind of enjoy and that they're kind of it's a challenge then they're much more likely to not miss um, leaving their baby you know not, not miss so much not having their baby with them so I think that that's a that often works. Really well. It's counterintuitive, but I think it works. And I think as an editor, you can be kind of flexible in understanding of people's home lives. And if you are, then they'll always work much harder for you.
1: Yeah, I I, I mean I thought those questions were really interesting because a few times in the debate I thought we were going to touch on this issue of you know, some of the reasons why Sundays don't do very well, as Eleanor said, was because lots of women with children are the ones who tend to take on more of the childcare and decide that they want to be at home. All on news stories, they have sort of made a decision. And that is a decision, um, as you said. And I think we need to respect that because there are lots of men who feel like that as well. And I think, you know, one of the problems is that we, we have to accept that there has to be a flexible workplace. So, you know, Elinda mentioned the foreign correspondence. There are lots of women who don't feel like that, but there are many who do. And things like the job share at The Guardian. I mean, I, I, like Helena, you know, every time I came back, I've got three children, I came back every time I got a new job. I was so grateful, as so many women are, that over my 18 years at The Guardian, I had lots of different flexible jobs. That sort of gratitude, actually, I mean, you know, women who are allowed to take flexibility, that that makes you an incredibly loyal employee. Mm. But, you know, this is not just for women, this is for men and women. Workplaces work better if you allow people to have the choice.
0: Um, The second question um, is, a woman wants to hire women for a team, and how do you encourage um, ambitious young women to to apply? So, Alison, I know you're... you're, I know, I love that that question.
4: Um, We worked with a tech company that had this challenge. They posted a job. And, of course, we know the dearth of, there aren't enough women in tech is always the statement. But they posted the job and what they found is they had hundred men applying and guess how many women? Zero, not one. So they came to us and one of my colleagues worked with them and they were in Silicon Valley and they were a big company. And she said she looked at the job description and she said, why would they apply? When you look at it, language is powerful. And how, and I know we're with experts here are much better at the language than I am. But what we did is we changed our job description and they had 40 women apply. How you present yourself, not only in the job description, but when somebody walks in, they're interviewing you too. And they're seeing. And for me, I mean, my personal story, I wasn't in this field. I, w- I worked for a bro- brokerage firm. I was hired by a brokerage firm. I was one of two women hired. I lasted one week. <laughs> and, I, and I was the only one that spoke the local language. And it was, long story short, I was asked twice during the interview process, one by the president, if I'd have children. And i have been married forever, and I'm like, I don't know. You know. I really, they hired me for my flexibility. I was interviewing them. And I watched them send a young woman, MBA student, she had her MBA, and they would send her out to do toilet paper runs or buy espresso beans. And it was in Switzerland, but it wasn't a Swiss company. And I walked, five years later, they reached out to me to invest my money in their brokerage firm. And I told the story, and it was a woman, a female broker. I thought, they've changed. They hadn't. (laughs) She goes, Alison, I think we need to go have a glass of wine. (laughs) So what I say is, check to see who's doing the interview. Show, find out what you need to do. In terms of solutions, most people think this problem is sorted. They don't really think there's a problem, most of them. I'm sorry. I hear it left and right. And then when you highlight the problem, there's a fear of unfairness from the dominant group, which are largely oftentimes men. There's this fear of, it's gonna hurt me. So you have to look at the culture, look at everything, but initially first get the job description, so it's, it's something that, you know, there can be words I can really tweak it. I've got a more, I've got a more practi- a really
2: practical solution, which is we've got a Women in Journalism, Women in Business Journalism event coming up really soon where we're inviting <laughs> lots and lots of um, young female journalists who might be interested in business, partly because business is one of the few areas where you can actually get a job, I'm always saying to young women who want to get on in journalism, go on the business pages, we did a brilliant um, session at uh, Bloomberg, where one of the um, top women there talked about how she'd started off writing about oil futures, and she was like the only woman who was doing that, and actually it's a really Amazing. I think Gillian Tech came and talked too, and she was saying it's an amazing route into journalism because there are so few women doing it, so I think we can help you get that message out there. We're trying to do that, and you know maybe come on the panel and say you're recruiting, you'll have a line of them. <laughs> <laughs> All we, right,
0: um, we, we still have a, a question uh, to answer, and then I'd like to get more questions from the audience. The, the third question is about uh, having a gender audit, uh, right? Yeah, backed by legislation,
7: so Ben. <laughs> uh, I think you'd create an almighty fuss if you started to require newspapers to do legislative... <laughs> they uh, do it in Ofcom. Yeah. Of they do it in Ofcom, that's, that's true. But if you, if you think post-Leveson, I think it's much easier to do surveys like this, much more mm-hmm. effective to do surveys like this, and to do them regularly and to keep going. Yeah, well, we're
2: certainly
7: intending to. You don't need Theresa May to find time to do it for you. I All
2: think right. that the, the, the new things coming in around pay that if you're an organisation of more than 250 people you've got to publish what the women earn and what the men earn yeah. I think that's going to be quite useful I and mean, it had a massively galvanising effect on the BBC and what from what I hear the BBC are actually going to look like angels compared to a lot of the other companies who are coming down the track so I, I think that that's going to make a big fuss and I think that the very fact that those kind of things are happening that the Ofcom ladies talked about it that we they did looked at women in broadcasting this is a people realize now that diversity isn't isn't just a nice to have it's an essential it's a business essential if your business is going to prosper and that's particularly true i think for the media but it's just getting into the heads of the the chaps at the top that it really is a necessity because from their point of view maybe it doesn't seem quite so much
0: okay uh, let's get another round of questions this gentleman here
8: <laughs> i appreciate your passion for your industry but and I'm a consumer of newspapers, too. And I'm sure diversity is the right thing to do. But the truth of the matter is, I don't read the byline. I don't, I don't really pay much attention to who is writing. That's
5: really good.
8: What I haven't heard the dots connect, really, is from a consumer's point of view, for somebody who buys your newspaper, why will, h- how will this change what I see from a consumer's point of view? as opposed to just really being an internal matter in, in the industry.
7: Okay. But it's a terrible oh. secret of journalism wait, wait, wait. Is that most, most readers don't read the bylines. It obsesses all
0: journalists. <laughs> I want to I get to more questions and we'll, we'll get to, to answering. Um, this woman here in the front. Yeah. In the, um,
3: Thanks. It's, it's related to, to that question actually. Um, I work with a lot of management consulting firms and the reason that they started to change was because their consumers their clients started to say Present me with a with an old mail panel go away Because you're not going to get the right solution for me, and I wonder whether Do you use the data that you've presumably got from all of your electronic? <laughs> electronic information, you know the digital revolution has given you loads of data Can you see who's how? What the proportion of your readership is, and who's reading what. So I know, for instance, that I go to certain writers, many of whom are actually women. um, As a matter of choice, that that data must be available, and I wonder whether you can use that to show the editors that they're going to get better readership and therefore more sales and more advertising revenue if they are more representative of the audience.
0: Okay. So the question is about data. Who is using the data? And then, okay, there's. uh, (coughs)
8: <coughs> um, hi there, my name is Gervais, um, I'm a civil servant. Uh, question, how um, you touch a bit on kind of sexism in uh, in the workplace within that some of you might have experienced or um, heard stories of. Um, would you say that you'd be kind of comfortable uh, challenging that where it happens and are the right kind of, um, you know, do you think there's the right culture and HR and all that kind of thing that might go with it to... To support you in that, because obviously different types of organizations have that a lot more, and, and I'm, I wonder whether that exists within newspapers. And then, just a second quick thing um, you've also touched on how the issue is quite different in the tabloids, um, and uh, even when there's a lot of women working there, it doesn't necessarily change, it, and even the women at the top. What do you think the separate issue there is it about just the politics of the paper and reflecting um, <coughs> their readership to some extent, or? Uh, you know, is there, is there something else particularly to do with the culture and how to challenge that? All right, that? so
0: um, we have three questions. Let's try and, and and make our answers short so that we have time to answer all three of them. Um, the first one is uh, someone who doesn't read bylines and how will, will changing, bringing more women bylines change what he <laughs> se- sees as a consumer?
6: Um, what is interesting when you... Uh, read uh, the analysis that um, scholars do on, on news media is that uh, what they say is you know something you know that Alison touched on uh, to be aware of you know, attaching a certain point of view and a certain way of describing things to one gender or to one class or to one uh, specific identity. However, what scholars also say is that, while we cannot say that women and men report things differently, we can say that women tend to have a more um, attention to what the audience want. And at the same time, women tend to um, call on women as sources of the news. And the role of sources in the news text and in the news in general is crucial because sources tell us who is legitimated to speak about mm. a, a given topic. So w- the changes that this bring to the consumer or the, the reader is that in a, the pre- women who write story tend in general to ask other women to be the sources of their story. And that legitimate the way in which women see themselves and participate to public life. All right, uh, let's
0: go to the second question. Um, Maybe it's got to be either Eleanor or or Ben.
2: Um, I can talk about data. Um, Interestingly, you can now track exactly who's reading what, and we also know that a lot of the more kind of uh, female end of stuff often drives more readers than the hard news, which is quite an interesting um, which is quite an interesting shift because there's a very much culture in a lot of newspapers that um, hard news is what everybody wants and so it's quite interesting as somebody who runs the kind of magazine more lifestyle into things to think to see that actually that's driving more traffic than a lot of the you know the the more kind of uh, boysy stuff up the other end um and i think it's also i think i should mention here that in one newspaper group they have a metric of who's reading what and the metric is a man. They don't actually. They don't seem to care what the women are reading. There's a little. There's a little male icon, and there's a, and there's no women, so they're only interested in what the men are reading. So I think that's why I'm really slightly depressed and worried about the future. because I don't think we can say that when we go digital, we're suddenly going to be in this egalitarian, utopia and diversity is going to be embedded in it. Trevor Phillips wrote a brilliant piece for me the other day in the magazine about um, how his computer was, um, his laptop was racist and (laughs) sexist. And there are all sorts of algorithms which are inside it which are already propagating a whole load of kind of worldviews which we don't like. So I think that we have to to challenge this within newspapers, we have to challenge it even more in the digital world. we have to make sure that the data actually looks at what women want. I mean, I, I really think that the way that the future is being framed is really scary in that respect.
0: The third, uh, third question is about uh, would you be uh, uncomfortable challenging your employer? It's more like, a, like an HR issue, right? So, Yasmin,
2: what do you think?
5: I think the world of the newspaper, and I also want to refer back to the child's question, the lady in front of you. It's a really terrifyingly hard world. It reports on sexism and equality and all of that, but actually, you have to be really tough. And if I'm honest, often you don't seek redress because it's just too tough. It's too tough. You're vulnerable, you want to get ahead, and it takes real courage. Now, there are some. Changes in the workplace since I started. I started actually very late in life. Um, and there are some workplaces, and I think Guardian, one of them, Times, and so on, they do officially have all the systems in place. But you know, it's really tough to use that system. And to the lady who asked about childcare, I fear that although with the best intentions, you will be judged if you don't work. 60 hours a day and that's the truth of it and I remember dragging my poor little boy I feel so bad about it sometimes because I was so fiercely ambitious to get break in and I was 37 when I wrote my first article untrained I used to drag him everywhere because I didn't dare say to anyone I was a lone mother and I had a child and I don't think things have changed that much I'm sorry it's just realism
0: (coughs)
2: Um, so I think it's changed on that front. I tell you what has changed on that is that it's quite often now men who say, actually, I can't do that story because yes. I'm looking yes. after the children. And that for me is, a, I think that's a brilliant kind of a much better equality. And there's a whole generation of younger men who are much just as likely to say, oh, no, I really can't do that because I've got to pick up the kids from school or I can talk to you at three, but then I've got to go out. And when I used to work from home more when my kids were small, um, I would n- never have said that. I, mean, I remember it. if people rang me, I would sometimes have on occasion locked my child in the car while it was shouting like,
1: yeah, I should, so I true. could take <laughs> screaming <laughs>
2: child so I could take a call from a senior executive because that was the price of being able to work at home and uh, you know my, my children now laugh about it or some of their first words were hello I'm Eleanor Mills and I work for the Sunday you know I'm calling from the Sunday Times they still do it They go Eleanor Mills thought it was really funny <laughs> it was the kind of first le- sentence they learned to say and they will always wanted my phone so I don't think it's damaged them that much they, you know, they're quite <laughs> proud of me
1: really <laughs> Shall but I mean, there is a bit of that. I also, the, the same um, chap asked about the tabloids as Very well, the, with the sexism. I mean, I think that links a lot of what we're talking about, but as a consumer, what you notice. You know, tabloids <laughs> grew up in a particular culture. Um, if you look at some of the pictures that five years ago we looked at, you know, there were three of the top ten pictures on front pages were women. There were two, a princess, her sister, and a v- child victim of a horrible crime, Madeleine McCann. I mean, you know, to get noticed in a culture that's so dominated by men and so sexist, you have to be a princess or dead. So, you know, I think there is, this, they have consequences, these things. I think, Jane, to, on that, to be fair,
2: it ha- that has shifted a bit. One of the positive things we discovered when we were doing this report was the coverage of female sport, which used to be yeah. a total joke. You know, when um, Joanne Conter looked like she might be going to do really well yeah. in Wimbledon, yeah. all the papers got behind her and actually not in a sexist way, just in a kind of, you know, kind of hooray for, <laughs> hooray for a kind of, you know, a possible English champion. And I think that the way that women's sport was covered, say, at the Olympics has been really good. There's a lot more female football on telly. And I
5: think there are, there are some bright spots. Can I well, just tell you this very funny story? The, very, well, the optimist story, very, stole, because very quickly. Because we out of time. <laughs> not that long ago, a drunk senior editor, of, oh, of a seem, seemingly kind of liberal, said to me, God, that was a really good trick you pulled off, putting that brown at the end of your name, finding a man called Brown, because with that foreign name, you wouldn't have got anywhere. So I said to him, I know, I know, I know. I could have been brighter and got a Mr. White to marry me.
0: <laughs> well,
5: I'm, I'm afraid that's
0: all we have time for tonight. It's nice to end on this note. You have to laugh, don't you? Thank you, Thank you very much uh, for being here tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the panel as much as I did. Um, and don't go anywhere because we have drinks and we want to chat with you <laughs> upstairs on the fourth floor um, in the senior dining room. Thank you very much. Thank
8: you very much.